Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got two guys who've been friends a long time, but recently formed a new project together. Oh, and one of them happens to be the bassist in a little band called Pearl Jam. It's Jeff Ament and John Wicks. Now, Jeff Ament, you've surely heard of since he's a founding member of one of rock's biggest and most reliable acts, Pearl Jam, who've been going strong and steady since the early 1990s. That band released their latest album, Gigaton, right when the pandemic first hit us, so it scuttled some touring plans, but Pearl Jam is back out on the road this fall. Amit has always been a musical seeker beyond his main gig, though, experimenting both with solo records and side projects over the years. He's also an accomplished visual artist. And not only is Amit the hand behind Pearl Jam's iconic Stickman logo, he's also an incredible painter and poster artist. You'll hear some of that in this conversation. John Wicks is an accomplished drummer, probably best known as a founding member of the band Fitz and the Tantrums, though he's also loaned his skills to the likes of Bruno Mars and CeeLo Green. He teamed up with his old friend Eamon to make the music for a TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven, and then the pandemic allowed them time to study an entirely new project that they've called Deaf Charlie. Their debut album, Under the Name, is catastrophic metamorphic, and it's a weird, fun, occasionally dark set of psychedelic pop that's also fully engaging. Amit sings lead on most of the songs, which is new for him. Check out a little bit of We Are Doing It right here. chat you're about to hear took place the day after Def Charlie's first rehearsal as a full band. Even though Wicks and Ament never really intended to play these songs live, plans changed and they'll be making their live debut at the Ohana Festival in early October. Both of these guys live in Montana now and they chat about Ament's upbringing in small town Big Sandy, Wicks' recent job as a professor at the University of Montana, how originality is often discovered through mistakes, and the unparalleled joy of finding yourself inside the music or other art that you're making. Enjoy. Maybe a good place to start is our first rehearsal last night. I could tell you were getting a good vibe from everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. They all seem super sweet. That's sort of the first time that I've been the singer in a band, you know, like there's, I've done rehearsals where I sing a song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like going through five or six songs and like remembering all the words and uh, listening to everybody, you know, because Jolene was singing with me and trying to get a vibe for all that. It was, it was cool just to, ha- just to have that hat on. It has that feeling of a beginning band, which is always like super exciting. You know, you have, you know, like you, those first rehearsals of every band that you've been in are like kind of the most exciting time. So um, it, had, it definitely had that feeling, which is like really cool. It totally does. And um, so as long as Pearl Jam's been going, like, is it is the extent of the vocal stuff that you've been doing mostly just background? And then there's like the the occasional like, let's feature Jeff on this thing. Yeah, really, there's only one song that ever made a record that and that was it was kind of a little bit of a joke song called Sweet Lou. And I get coerced into playing it live. And it's like a really weirdo, like maybe one of the most weirdo Pearl Jam songs. So it's not usually doesn't go down great live. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's mostly just backgrounds. And uh, I mean, there's there's plenty of 
you know, there's been plenty of times we've brought in, I've brought in complete songs that have all my vocals on it, you know, but that's a, that's a different thing than sitting in and singing through songs with, you know, basically strangers. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of interesting last night because we were playing tunes that you were using your falsetto in. Yeah. And I think like my only concern with that was that I couldn't remember if it projected like the same way as your full throated voice does. And the answer is yes, it does. Like it was like, Um, there was no problem hearing what you were doing and Jolene's voice, the high, high harmonies that she was doing that actually blended really well. And when the other two guys sing as well, I think it's going to be, it's going to be sick. And Tom, man, Tommy just kills me, man. Tommy is just uh, he's just such a badass. You know, he comes in knowing the songs better than we do. I think that's the way he plays in this jazz, you know, world. Like he, you know, you learn how to play every note, you know, and every part, so you can go, you know, go any way. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That, you know, it's it, it's going to be cool just to get a few more rehearsals under our belt, <clears throat> sort of be na- you know nailing the changes and and all of that. Totally. It's crazy to be at this point considering where we started, you know, because that, you know, I don't think until a, a couple of months ago there was any intention. I've ever playing songs live right <laughs> but that's the exciting part about the journey is that it's sort of letting us know that it's you know there is more to do more to be done and more challenges and more fun i was thinking about this yesterday i guess i don't know i'm getting a little older now and like i'm starting to like um well to be honest i'm trying to eliminate things from my life that like i don't give at least 90 percent of fuck about you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, and it's an interesting process because I, I it's hard to detox from being the yes man where I've always just said yes to everything that came because I, I sort of out of necessity, just from a even from a purely financial level, the hustle has been like just nonstop for, you know, 30 years. So it's tough for me not to say yes to everything. But lately, I've I've been trying to not do that. And, and I guess because of doing that, I have more time to reflect, which is both a blessing and a curse. But the good part of it is, is that I'm able to recognize what's really important. And like the, this project in particular has been really good for me just to kind of spread my wings a little bit more again, creatively, but it's in an environment that I relate to a lot more in that back in the day, like it was never a struggle to stretch creatively when I was just playing jazz music, right? Just because that's what that's about, but to do it in within composition and within a a, more of a rock-based style has been a really cool thing, man. It's not something I ever anticipated, and and it's been really an eye opener for me that to see what's possible and what's important. It's it's been great, and it's just it sucks that it took a pandemic to to, to start that. You know, <laughs> the thing I've always found funny is when all these different genres sort of put rules or regulations on sounds, arrangements, any of that stuff. And I think that's what's been fun about this is that. I think we've taken a lot of different angles of these songs and sort of pushed and pulled them into arrangements that we're not used to and sounds and, you know, styles that maybe are, that are new to each of us. And that, that, that's the exciting thing. And there's no reason why things that are rock based or that can go into that rock framework can can get more free and wide open. Rock music used to be that way in the sixties, you know, early seventies. There was, there was a lot of improv going on. So, Again, that that part's exciting, and and just knowing that you know when we make some more songs, that we sort of have 
all these amazing different players that can sort of add unique flavors, you know, to whatever, whatever we move forward with. And it all came to head for me just like last night in practice, like sort of seeing what, you know, all these folks can do. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. I've been reading a lot about Ornette Coleman, you know, and something that that occurred to me and just researching uh, the drummer, Paul Motion, and I'm kind of obsessed with him. And one thing that that occurred to me is that it seems to be like this recurring trend that happens that the people that get chastised or or sort of, you know, belittled from other artists or the press or whatever it is, seemingly always end up being the ones that like 30 years down the road, we go, oh, they were actually a genius. And that's where music was headed, you know? And reading about Ornette and just what he had to endure, it's mind blowing. I mean, how many guys, how many guys wanted to kick his ass? How many people actually did kick his ass physically, you know, for doing what he was doing? And to be honest, like I sort of bought into it, like for a long time, I didn't get it. You know, I didn't get Paul Motion either. I didn't, I didn't get what he was trying to do. But there's always that one aha moment. And usually it takes somebody like with the flashlight, you know, saying, just listen to this and what he's doing there. And then it sort of opens up my mind to go, oh, and I hate to say this because I feel guilty saying it because it's like, oh, that's valid. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't even want that to creep into my thought process. So like whether something is valid or not, you know, but if I'm going to be honest, like it takes something somebody's showing me something that I'm like, Oh, okay. I get that. You know, but it's funny that you were talking about the different styles that we're, we just brought into this deaf Charlie thing is that, that my constant concern throughout the whole process was like, is it too diverse, you know, and is it too hodgepodge, I guess, you know, and, and then I like this thing Ornette says consistently in almost every interview that I read about, but he said, I don't, I don't have a style because when you have a style, it's, it dies. Like that's, that's when things stop growing and you, yeah. you become entrenched in that one thing, you know? And I, I, I mean, literally like every, every interview I've, I've read with him, he says that or, or some variation of it. And it's sort of comforting to hear somebody like that, you know, sort of give me and you license to like it's okay to not stick to just one thing you know and have just that you be known for just that sound you know or and i'm sure it's like you know you being a painter as well i'm sure like it crosses over into that that world yeah yeah i mean that's that's kind of the great part about any kind of collaboration or being in a band i mean it can get tricky in a band because there's there's five or six strong personalities it's a lot but you know when when each person is going out and absorbing a bunch of different music and styles and art. And then you bring that back into the room. And even if somebody brings in a, a complete song or a complete arrangement, as soon as the, as soon as the other person or other people, if you let them sort of sort of push the song into the place that they hear it, then that's sort of when it becomes unique. It's like, I think it's when the bands, uh, when, you know, if there's a singer songwriter that has too much control over what style it's got to be and it's got to be like my demo and play exactly the notes in my demo i think that's when it gets you know well, i guess what ornette said that's when it dies you know like it's uh then the people that are playing the song really aren't playing the thing that's in their heart they're playing the thing that's somebody else's heart right and i think i always feel like i can see that live in a performance i've always thought the most important part about being in a band is letting letting each other sort of contribute 
because that's that's the only way that the song sort of becomes interesting and unique. The one time that I saw Ornette was when he had the two trios, and it was like it was hard to wrap my head around it. That was the first jazz show I'd ever seen. It was Ornette Coleman's two trios, wow. and it was like I I would, I would just focus on one trio, and then I could kind of wrap my head around that. But I but right. hearing it at the same time, it was like you know it's so symphonic and so free. And then I remember the guy that took me. He was talking about harmonious arrangements like where you know the stuff is just coming in and out of like connecting and that, that that's the exciting thing about any of these you know that's the exciting thing about playing view all of a sudden you're in a room with a whole brand new set of like somebody has a whole new set of tools that you've never seen right that part of it is super exciting I, I, you know again at this point in my life it's like i just want to do new stuff i want to i want to feel something new i want to create something new i want you know that's the stuff that gets me excited you were talking about the hustle and, and, you know, you go through that period of time where you just want to be cool and you just want to write a hit song and you just want to, you know, be popular and people like you. And I just don't give a shit about any of that anymore. Like, I just want to make cool art that, you know, when I listen to it or I play it for somebody, I'm like super proud. Like, we just did something that's like brand new to me. It's probably brand new to you too. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. One thing I was always, I've wanted to ask you for a while, how much does your audience even come into play when you're writing? Do you even think about them at this point at all? I mean, I mean I'm sorry, audience, but no. <laughs> yeah. You know, all my favorite music, it's like when people put 100% into it and they've done it for years, like if they're if they're going all in on it, there's the chances are I'm going to I'm going to relate to some aspect of it and I'm going to love some part of it if it's like if they're connecting to some spirit or some, you know, some real thing with their music and their lyrics and the melodies and rhythms like uh, there's there's a good chance that as a music lover you're gonna you're gonna love some part of it if they're if they're committed to 
you know, right. the, the song. I even feel like sometimes live, like, you know, I feel guilty saying it, but I always at the beginning of a show, like I'm just trying to get inside the songs. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to find that because I know when I'm not inside the songs and it sucks, like if the sound's not right or whatever, but if you can get inside the song and then you can, then you can get inside the band and what the band's doing. And then I think, I think that energy emanates from you. I think when you play, I think some of my favorite musicians like have their head down and their eyes closed. And that's like, I get the, I get the most out of some of those people than I do somebody who's David Lee Rothing it or, you know, really connecting aggressively, you know, connecting to the crowd. And that's a big part of it too. But seeing somebody with their eyes closed, just like inside the music, that's, I want to go there. I want to go where Brian Blade goes when he's playing. And so, I'm never thinking about the crowd, even though that energy is insane and is clearly affecting what we're doing. But I think the only way to for me to bring something to the table is to like just put myself in the center of the storm of the music and and play it as great and as interestingly as I can and uh, be powerful. Uh, yeah, I'm never going to be the guy like blowing kisses to the crowd or whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever so. That's a big part of it, you know, like committing and playing it authoritatively and committing. But I think most of what you're describing is like when you say getting inside the music, you're really listening to what's happening around you. And I think that's the door that gets us into that zone, you know, and everyone talks about the zone, whether it's like in athletics or in music or any art form for that matter. And like basketball players are like, as you know, you know, you've probably felt it where like the hoop is twice as big as yeah. as it normally is, you know, and you're able yeah. to like just you're you're in that space where nothing goes wrong. And and once you feel it, you just want it to be that way all the time. So you're trying to find it. But then, of course, like you, it's tough to find a trick to get to get into that space other than listening like you just described. You know, I think yeah. for us, that's the key is listening. And I think it's. It's probably, you know, a lesson to be learned even on a, in a conversation level, just being able to listen like that. There's this great drummer who I'm sort of obsessed with named DeAntony Parks, and he does this cool thing called Techno Self, where I've been trying to emulate what he's doing, which is playing, you know, keys with one hand and drums with the left hand. And, yeah. and um, but he's able to attain that zone and, you know, anything I've read or seen him do interview wise. He talks about what's called a transient hypofrontality experiment, which is that exact space that we get into when we exert ourselves, you know, like like I, I got into it when I was doing ultra marathons, you know, like you get to a point where your body just gives up and then you get into this zone where you don't even feel the ground anymore, you know, and yeah. it's such a beautiful space and, and you can feel that way in, in music as well when you're in that zone. And I don't know, man, like, again, as I get older, I just feel like that should be the ultimate goal, you know, like to try to get to that place, like you just described with Brian Blade, he's able to get there, you know, seemingly, especially when he's playing with Wayne Shorter and stuff like that, like you hear him play and, but it's just because he's listening so intently, you know, in the music. And, and I, and like I said earlier, I don't think it has to be a jazz thing. I mean, that it lends that style of music lends itself because it's so conversational and you have to listen and react. But like even with what we're doing, it, it just you can get to that place 
first of all, last night, like what I noticed is like, I'm out of shape <laughs> and like playing, <laughs> rock, playing rock music again. Like, but that's a good thing. Like, you know, there's something so physical about playing drums. I think it's one of the reasons that exertion and that repetitiveness is one of the reasons, like, I think drummers are able to get into that space, that zone that we're talking about. Maybe, maybe easier than maybe other instruments, perhaps, you know, just because because of that aspect, we're exerting ourselves. And and that's one of the things I love. I've sort of had to like almost come to terms with the athletic aspect of drumming because I used to want to separate athletics and art. And now I'm like, well, part of the reason I play drums is I just like to sweat. I sort of had to just sort of acknowledge that. And, and um, it's it's been cool, like taking a break, you know, the pandemic and then, you know, just spending time just practicing again has kind of gotten me that place. I'm curious what your process is like. Do you have a regiment as far as like, you know, it doesn't even have to be practicing bass per se, but like just just of yeah. just general creative practice. I'm curious if you're regimented about it or how you go about it. Well, you know, um, probably 80, 90 percent of the time that I'm playing the instrument, I'm I'm playing it to write a song or write a or find a riff or find a new way of like coming up with something. Right. The other 10 to 20 percent of the time I'm doing it as a meditation where and I, it can be any instrument. I mean, I do, I do it a lot uh, leading up to a tour where I'll, I'll find an uncomfortable pattern or scale, like just something weird, but something that makes my fingers do something that normally doesn't do. And I'll just try to like lock into a repetition and play it for like a half an hour. Wow. Just like, just play that thing. So that once you get five minutes into that thing, you're not even thinking about playing it, but you're finally relaxed enough that you can sustain playing it for a long period of time. And then you go into a meditative state, which is like the most beautiful thing about music. When you, when you can play something, you, you know, repetitive, I mean, trance music is that way. There's a lot of religious music that sort of is that way. And I think it's almost one of the things that I love the most about playing music. I mean, I, I tell my friends that don't play instruments. I'm like, Get a guitar, learn a C minor, and just and just strum it and try to strum it like in time. And I said, and don't and just think about, just really think about what you're what notes you're hitting, and just think about trying to do it the same every time. And I said, that's meditation. That's like then you're then all of a sudden you're breathing in time with this strum, and you're like, you know, you're locked into this thing that you're doing, and like you feel good from it. You literally, your body feels. You know, you, you come out of it and you go like, oh, okay, like I'm not depressed anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. And I've always loved music that has that, has that, those repetitious elements to it. And um, I think because it, it does put you in that meditative state. And I think it's, I went through a phase where I was trying to learn how to be a shredder. And I was probably 35 years ago, like where I was like, really, you know, I was obsessed with like all the shredder bass player guys. And then I, I realized that, um, with what I do, there was really no place for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then even going to see shows or you see a rock band or something and there's a bass solo, you're just like, oh my God, that's the worst thing of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, you, it's like you, it, it doesn't articulate well in like arenas or bigger places because it's low and it's like, so So I, I at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to just come up with my own way of trying to play this instrument, you know, based on, you know, the different players that I love. And, and I, I get obsessed with music and I'll, I'll, I'll just like play along with records, which is yeah. basically how I learned how to play. Cause I, sure. I, 
the only lessons I've ever taken were to learn how to blow an upright. So I've never really, um, I just get obsessed with like, you hear some player playing in a new way and you're like, Oh, I gotta, what, what's he doing there? I gotta figure that out. And so that, that's, you know, you're a fan of music. And I think, uh, that's the best part when there's a new young musician comes up and all of a sudden he's playing their instrument in a totally different way. And you, you know, you get obsessed right. with it and it, and then all of a sudden you have another tool and tool belt and you don't even know. Yeah. So do you have a time every day that you, this is when I practice uh, every day or is it kind of loose? Uh, I usually go in the studio in the morning and try to come up with something that I could put down on tape, uh-huh. you know, a lot of days. And then also usually before dinner, uh, I'll, I'll usually, and, and usually I won't be in the studio then. Usually I'll just be playing piano or playing my guitar or something. Yeah. But usually it's just sitting down and going like, I'm just going to put my hands in a weird spot, see what happens. Yeah. One of my composition teachers, that was a, a trick to get me over my plateaus. He was like, just put your hands, uh, every finger on a key and then start removing one by one and then see what's there. It's like it's like spinning the globe and putting your finger on. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm, yeah. I'm going to Bolivia next year. Yeah, you and I have spoken about this drummer Zach Hill. Yeah, he plays with Death Grips now, and he was in that band Hella and a few other things. I'm a huge fan of his, and and one thing that that I read is he'll choose a pattern like you just described, one that he can't quite pull off. Uh, or and he'll just play that same thing over for an hour straight, you know, yeah. and I don't think he's working with a metronome or anything like that. I think he probably pushes the tempo because pretty much everything that he plays is blazing fast. But yeah, but he'll just find a pattern and just work that for an hour straight without practicing. And he'll go as hard like as if he's playing in front of a crowd of, you know, 40,000 people playing with that level of authority in it. And I I really I, I hadn't really thought about practicing in that way. I've obviously drumming is repeating, you know, so I've I've practiced that, but there was something about him saying that he did it for an hour straight as a as a in a at a really high intensity rate. And it sort of was doubled up by um you remember we've talked about Fish Fisher from Fishbone. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh I studied with Fish Every time I, I go through L.A., I try to get a lesson with him. And that's one thing he always reiterates is and anyone that's <laughs> anyone that's in the building where his practice space is will will reiterate this because <laughs> they can hear him like he practices and makes the walls sweat. That's the way he describes it. You know, like he yeah. he goes in full bore and, and it makes sense because, I mean, whether it's Fishbone or whoever he's playing with, you want to be able to play with that level of intensity when you if you're practicing, you're not really like playing you're doing it casually, it doesn't really translate and you're not going to have access to that tool when you get on stage, you know, whereas he plays just balls out, you know, from the get go. And uh, it's, it's an inspiring way to practice. It's, I've been trying to adopt that into my own thing because I've been finding that no matter how much I practice something, a lot of times it's not accessible in my, in my everyday playing you know i'm just tired of hearing myself play the same old shit you know yeah. and um the other thing that was interesting that one of my teachers told me was that the only thing that we're gonna play that's original is our mistakes and because everything else you know we've heard somebody do you know or we're emulating our heroes or or, or whatever it is except our mistakes and so a cool way to approach practicing is just to it's kind of what you were just describing as well is like you just start playing until you can't pull something off. And then you're looking forward to mistakes, right? And it takes all the pressure off. 
You know, like we have so much pressure nowadays, especially in the digital age with the grid and everything else to be perfect. Right. But like if we just allow ourselves to make mistakes, we're going to have a lot more original voices out there, I think, you know, and I try to instill that in all my students at University of Montana. It's like because I can just see the pressure they put on themselves and that other instructors put on them. You know, when I have them one on one and I'm having them play something and they make a mistake, just man, how they beat themselves up. And I'm like, man, that's okay. You know, it's like, just now let's just figure out what that mistake was and let's loop that for a while, you know, <laughs> just to take the the pressure off of ourselves to be perfect. And that's a, that's a trick that I've learned live too. Like there's a section of a song that, you know, that's, that's more improv and people are going off into things. And like, you know, if you hit a weird note, that's not in the key. On bass, everybody looks. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what I figured out years ago was that you just keep going back to that note a few times after that. Yeah, they're like, right. Oh. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like, oh. And you meant to do that. Yeah, you meant to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. It's like the old joke with drummers. It's like, when does, the, during a drum solo, when do they clap the loudest is when you uh, drop a stick. <laughs> and you're like, oh, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> they want to see the human element that people don't yeah. want to see perfection. You know, yeah. I knew a drummer that would like drop sticks on purpose after a while. I was like, dude, it kind of uh, defeats the purpose, <laughs> man. <laughs> 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 I'm fascinated just with everyone's creative process. Is it kind of the same with your the visual art stuff that you you do? Uh, you have a regiment about that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Like with the painting, it's like I usually try to do it first thing in the morning when I'm not thinking about anything, and it's usually just grab the first thing and start doing something. And ninety percent of the time, it's horrible. But the ten percent of the time, that all of a sudden. You're just like trying to get your hand to move in a different way, using a different brush, you're using, you know, a different stick or whatever. Then you come up with a shape that you that resonates with you. And that's that's when you get excited because you're like, oh, I'm gonna turn this into something cool because I sort of mistakenly uh just freed myself up from all of my training. Yeah. <laughs> and did something new and that's again like I, you know you were saying like you get to an age where you're like man i just want to i just want to do new stuff i want to have a new feeling you know every day if i can and if, you know something you else know. and it's not it's not a feeling that you're trying to impress anybody you're, you're mostly just trying to impress yourself or you're trying to prove to yourself that you, there's more there's more to learn and there's more there's more places to, that you can push into and, and that really it's it's infinite you know and you're just like, I'm going to make tons of mistakes and I'm going to, I'm going to be crappy for a good part of the day, but for 10 minutes, I'm going to be awesome. Yeah. And I'm going to, and that, 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 that 10 minutes is going to be like celebratory, you know, it's going to, it's going to make it so, you know, you deserve to go have a nice meal or, which is, yeah. which, you know, that mentality, that mentality was how I was brought up. My dad was always like, you know, to, you got to earn, you got to earn your dinner. You got to go put the time in and then your dinner tastes better when you put the time in. Your brother's a visual artist as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great one. Yeah. And so it's surprising to me that in a town of, what was it? 700 something people, Big Sandy, you know? Yeah, 700, yeah. Yeah, man. Like, I don't know. I guess maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Bainbridge Island was kind of similar in that way where maybe there's something magical about that isolation I'm just wondering how artists, how two predominant artists 
came out of that family and out of that town of, of, you know, 700 people. You know, you know, my brother was the first person I heard that had this perspective. He said, the great thing about growing up where we did is that we could kind of do anything and be pretty good at it. Or in some cases, because you're the only one doing that particular thing, like being a skateboarder or something, you'd be the best right, right. in your town. Right, right. And I think if you have 18 years of like being able to access things that um, where nobody's telling you that you're shitty. Yeah. Or, or putting this, you know, like the way it is now, like, I don't know how kids do it. It's like, you look at your phone and then you immediately see like a hundred people that are way better than you. And so (laughs) you're afraid to be creative or you're afraid to take chances because you're afraid to fail. And I think, especially when you're a kid and you're going through, you know, the chemistry stuff, like you're so sensitive and, you know, we're all, we're all taught like that. We should, you know, we shouldn't fail. And, my brother talked about it. He says, like, you know, like you and I were like really, really good football players. We were the best football players on our team. We were like, you know, all state because we grew up in a small state and a small town in a small state, you know? Right. And so you could sort of be pretty good at anything that you put your mind to because, you know, again, like if you're if you're playing drums in Big Sandy, you're probably the best drummer. There's, <laughs> there's only there's only one or there's two or three or whatever. Right. That was a powerful thing to go to Missoula and then later Seattle with, whereas I, I think I had a self-assurance about like, well, maybe I can't do it right now, but like, give me a month. I'm going to put the time in and I'm going to, I'm going to catch up. And I'll be honest, like every band that I've been in, I've, I've, there's been one or two guys in the band that were way better than me. I don't know if that's easy for people when they're younger, but that was the best position I could be in. And I, and I almost always was in a band with a great drummer and it was like, okay, I got to fucking put my time in, man. Like I, if I, if I'm going to like earn my scraps at the table, like, you know, I gotta, I gotta practice and I gotta get better. I gotta like, I gotta keep up with this, you know? And that's half the reason I can play at all is because I just, I just been around like great, either great musicians or great songwriters. And, and that just, that, that, that just, you know, being in the room. And I think if, I think if you show that you work hard, you will always be accepted into any group because there's nothing people want more than guys that are going to put the time in and, and not just be a good player, but also contribute in all the other ways that it takes to being a band. Cause being in a band is far more than just being a musician, you know, being in a band is yeah. understanding the business and, you know, understanding all the, the visual elements that go into being in a band and relationships, you know, in, in the business and relationships on the road and, there's a lot of ways that you can contribute in the band. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting perspective when you move to Seattle, when you move to a larger town, even though when you and I were in Seattle, I don't know, it's, it still felt like a small town. It doesn't really feel that way anymore. But yeah, th- just being able to put like, I try to instill this in my in my daughters is if I ever hear them say, oh, I can't do that. You always follow it with yet, you know, just that word yet, just put yep. yet after it, you know, and it puts you in a different mindset. That's really cool. I think that's, I I think it was the same on Bainbridge Island, you know, Bainbridge, you know, it was only a half hour ferry ride from Seattle, but it's, it was so isolated in so many ways, you know, and uh, it was perhaps maybe it was the woods. It was very wooded and, and uh, mysterious kind of, you know, and, and, uh, but there was, as you know, more than anyone, there was such a talent pool that came out of that environment, you know, and then I went to Central Washington University in Ellensburg. And I remember trying to like 
do all these different degree paths just so that I could still be creative, but maybe make some money. I remember hearing this story about this kid. I may have told you this before, but this kid who grew up in an even smaller town than Big Sandy, he lived in like some cabin somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And he was going to Central. But this kid lived in such a remote environment. And it's probably impossible these days. But back then in the late 80s, early 90s, it was it was probably still possible. Like this kid didn't really have access to anything. Like he didn't have access to like magazines or or anything. He just had his own imagination, you know. And his freshman year of college at Central, he he went and started the graphic design department and essentially got plucked out by the top design firm in Seattle because he had so many original ideas because he had no concept of what an ad was supposed to look like, you know? Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, man. It was so unaffected, you know? And um, yeah, I just remember being kind of like struck by struck by that and, and, um, and just realizing that that isolation can be a good thing, not, you know, not super detrimental. Yeah. And another thing that my brother and I talked about, I, mean, I remember this conversation like 15 years ago that we had about all this. And I said, I said, the other thing is, I think he and I both, like if somebody told us that we couldn't do something or told us that, you know, you're a loser because you're doing that thing it's, that they don't understand, then you, like, I, I think we both got kind of righteous about it. Like, oh, yeah. You know, you know, you're beneath us. Yeah, yeah. Like, because, because, because you, because you've never heard punk rock, or you've never, you know, you've never heard of Francis Bacon, or or what, you know. So we we would lean into that the weirdo part of growing up. Like we were really searching out to find our individual being. Yeah. And the more that people said that we couldn't do it or that we were losers or whatever, the more that we fought for that part of like who we were becoming. And I think that helped us later on. Like you, anytime somebody tells you, wait a minute, let me get this right. You like, you work in a restaurant and you pay to tour and you pay to put out records. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I, w- I would tell my relatives, like, I'd be like, yeah, I would put a record out. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're making a bunch of money. No, no, no. We actually paid to put it out. Like, we were like, huh? What? Like, right. Yeah. yeah I work in a, re- I work in a restaurant. I've worked in a restaurant for seven years. So, you know, they're just like, you know, yeah. And then they tell you like, well, our kid graduated with honors, uh, you know, at the university or whatever. And he's making six figures. And yeah. 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 It's like, well, well, I'm in a punk rock band and I, I just toured the East Coast and it was awesome. <laughs> I'm curious though, because I feel like I had that thing too. Well, I know I did and I still do. I, if you want to get me to do something, tell me I can't do it. Maybe it was our folks that ingrained that in us, maybe unknowingly. I don't remember having that talk with my mom or my dad. I guess I consider them sort of that personality. So maybe that's where I learned it. But it's such an an important thing. I remember like where you and I first crossed paths was at Uptown Espresso in Seattle. And working the mornings there, you're like coming through and you're serving all these business people that are going to their nine to fives. And you you become the master of that short conversation over the counter. And they're always asking me, so what do you what do you do? And I said, well, I play drums. And and the reaction was always, "Well, well, what do you what do you really want to do? Yeah. I'm like, no, that's that's actually what I'm going to do. Even sometimes your my own family could be the the worst enemy in that. 
you know, sort of undermining. Like, I remember them just not believing that I was happy. Like, the, how are you doing? I'm great. You know, it was always my standard became like a joke with my folks. I always answered, I'm great. I'd be like living in a rehearsal space in downtown Seattle with no showers yeah. or whatever. And they're like, how are you doing? I'm great. You know, and they're like, just like, wait, yeah. how you're in your 20s and you freaking can't make rent. You're living in a rehearsal space. You know, like, how is this? How are you great? Yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, you know, young people ask, like, you know, how do you make it or how? And I'm like, well, that means different things to different people. And I always say, like, hey, man, you're in your 20s. Like, just go for it. I was like, yeah. when I was in my 20s, I didn't have a car. I didn't have insurance. Half the time I didn't have a phone. And it was OK, like, because yeah. I had a great job. I like I went to the Raison and there was all these freaky people. And I and I was engaged again with like you know, all the people that were getting coffee from me. And, and then afterwards I got on my bike or my skateboard or whatever. And I went to re rehearse for two or three hours with like my buddies and made live music and like, you know, it was an exciting life. Like it was, you know, two or three times a week, you go see a band, you know, you save your money and go see a band. And it was like, you know, I, I, I didn't know that I was poor and that I was like, you know, all the, right. all the things that we get caught up with in our twenties, like, gotta have insurance and you gotta have it's like well like i broke my wrists and i i figured it out and i got sick and i'd go to the sliding scale clinic and get you know penicillin or whatever i didn't have much of a safety net i couldn't just go home you know and it was all that drove me to like well shit man if i worked eight hours a day and rode my bike 45 minutes like i'm gonna fucking practice harder i'm gonna try to <laughs> you know i'm gonna like i'm gonna try to get his gigs and i'm gonna you know like you you work harder a little bit, I think, when you're when times are the essence, and and then there's a little bit of survival kicking in, and that's all. That's all good. I wouldn't take my twenties back for anything, man. And it was, you know, if I wrote a book about it, people are like, "Oh my god, that was such a grind. It was such a hard, you know, hard life." But no, it's like it's pretty, it's pretty great, you know. And, and also just being away from your parents and doing it on your own, and you know, again, earning your dinner. Like it's like nobody helped me with this, right? You know. Like this mac and cheese I'm eating right now, like I've, I've earned that shit. I've told you this before, and I know we're running low on time here, but a buddy of mine, Ditto Montiel, wrote this book called uh, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints, right? Yeah, awesome. And, you know, as much as I've, I feel a kinship with you on that front, that that we definitely kind of did this on our own. You know, when we when we reflect, like you can kind of see those people that sort of were your saints and sort of just kind of nudged you in certain directions you know oh yeah yeah or just told you something like what i was describing earlier just even guys that showed me how to listen to certain music you know that i was yeah. that i had sort of dismissed but there is those folks that uh and i don't know there was something i feel like i say i wouldn't trade my 20s uh with with anyone like like yourself you know and and there was something magical about that time in in seattle that we were coming up and i I remember those people that that gave us that sense of optimism, you know, and that's not what Seattle was known for at the time. We were known as like this sort yeah. of like pessimistic, sort of sarcastic kind of environment. But I didn't really view it that way. You know, there was a sense of optimism and, and being unaffected up there that I that I I think is really cool. And it's one of the things that I hope from from Missoula, you know, or any any town that no one's really looking at, because the reason you and and your band. I I mean, you you all were aware of what was happening musically at the time. Obviously, you had your ear to the ground. But at the same time, 
that was kind of an outpost at that point, you know, and, Big time, yeah. you know, like there was a lot of bands yeah. that didn't even tour to Seattle at that point because it was too out of the way. Yeah. And yeah. but it was kind of that cool sort of unaffected thing that created that original movement that came out of there. And and like, I think if there's something to be learned from that, and, and I try to instill this in the folks at UM, is like, you know, it's where everyone's not looking, you know, that you should go check out. You know, like that's yeah. where the next stuff, the really heavy stuff's going to come from, you know, so stop being a follower and just like look the other direction when someone is doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And go for it. Like, don't, you know, don't put restrictions or time constraints. I'm like, you know, like I got to by the time I'm 23, I got to have a hit record or, you know, just ridiculous. Like, yeah. And I think, again, like, I think because we're so hyper connected to our phones, you see, I mean, man, if you're a, if you're an artist now and you see the, all these 20 year olds, like, you know, killing it, like it's, it's, it's that, that, that can be, I think, uh, a tough thing to, but I think shut your phone off and just do it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Jeff Amon and John Wicks for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the goodness at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.